Welcome to the Canon Law Society of America podcast, where Catholic canon lawyers share their stories, their knowledge, and their love for the law. Now, here's your host with this episode's guest canonist. Welcome to the Canon Law Society of America podcast series. I'm your host for this episode, Tim Olson. I'm the secretary for the CLSA Board of Governors, and I work for the Diocese of Fargo in North Dakota. Today, we welcome Core Bishop John Ferris, a core bishop of the eparchy of St. Marin, who's been a doctor of canon law for 40 years and is the 2011 recipient of the Role of Law Award from the Canon Law Society of America. Core Bishop, welcome. Thank you very much, Tim, for inviting me. I also want to appreciate, I appreciate the invitation by Donna Miller for facilitating this program. It sounds very interesting and I want to listen to all of them myself. I think, Tim, you could have probably foregone any reference to 40 years as a doctor of canon law. But I also seriously want to take this opportunity to congratulate you, Tim. Tim was just appointed the chancellor of the Diocese of Fargo. I think it takes effect in June sometime, but congratulations. And I think people like Tim are the real future of our society. Thank you, I appreciate that. I'm not going to let you get away from that 40 years, though, as a doctor of canon law. I think the main reason that we want to bring people like you on, Core Bishop, is because you have a long experience in the study of our law and the application of our law, and you've seen what it's good for in areas where it's hurting. And I think that's what I'd like to focus in on with you. Over the last 40 years, you've held a lot of positions. How have those positions impacted your view of canon law? Okay, how did the positions? Well, I think that that the church really changed under our feet. When I was studying canon law in the 70s, and that's the case with most, most people of my age, we didn't have a code to study. We were studying with mimeograph sheets of drafts of canons that were being thought about and prepared. So everything was very tenuous. We were looking perhaps more to the decrees, the documents of the Second Vatican Council, rather than the law itself, because the law itself was changing. We looked a little bit at the 1917 code, but we were looking forward. But it's interesting that penal law, when I was studying, was an elective. It was right up there with, not perhaps not elective, a minor course a minor course along with Roman law and perhaps the philosophy and law and things like that, because they felt that why would anybody need to study penal law? We really needed to study the nullity of marriages and how to do that. So that changed a lot. The world itself, the church itself changed around us. So canon lawyers in the past 20 years or so have had to retool themselves and start focusing on something very, very different than what we did before. So I think when we were in the 80s trying to navigate a new world with regard to liturgy, with regard to the role of the bishop, the role of Episcopal conferences in our lives, we were doing that, you know, by the tail of our coat. You guys, the younger people, are now having to figure out how do we really create a system, of a judicial system in the church, because there existed one on paper, 
but no one really had one. How do we create a real judicial system that goes beyond indicating the validity of marriage? Everything else was in theory. We weren't even familiar with what to do with such cases. And we also discovered when we dug deeper, when you guys dug deeper, it wasn't adequate to address the problems and the issues we had. So those are the two things. We were, we were navigating a new uh, unknown territory with regard to governance structures. You are navigating a territory with regard to judicial structures. So that's where I am with that, Tim. Corbishop, one of the other areas of great interest for you has always been the relationship between the churches of the East and the West. Um, and I know that you spent a, a great deal of time working with the Catholic Near East Welfare Association. Could you talk a little bit about, about your work with the Catholic Near East Welfare Association and how that impacted your work as a canonist? Uh, tremendously. I think that the years that I spent there, it was almost 14 years that I spent at Catholic Near East Welfare Association, we called it CANEWA by its acronym, were perhaps the most valuable parts of my formation as a priest and as a canonist. I was privileged to work under and with another canonist, Monsignor Robert Stern, who has his degree from the Lateran and is very, very familiar with the Eastern churches, both Catholic and non-Catholic, and has a real love for them. So I was with somebody who had a lot of information and knew everybody in the field. Before I was with Catholic Near East, I really had, beyond the Maronite Church itself, I had a theoretical understanding of what these Eastern churches were. I saw them on paper. I didn't know who they were. I didn't know what their, their lives, what they were struggling with. And being with Catholic Near East or Kanewa, I got to meet them. And because I was a canon lawyer, they would pick my brain so I would get to understand and appreciate the problems that they had, the challenges they were facing. One of the things I, I did come to realize was that the Cyril Malabar Church and the Cyril Malankara Church in India, these two churches are really diamonds in terms of mature churches living out the faith. And really, they are also missionary. I don't think very many Eastern churches are missionary. They're missionary. And I don't think we in the West know enough about them. I think we don't appreciate all the good work they're doing and how sophisticated their structures and institutions are. Well, okay, I think that we don't realize and appreciate the sophistication of their structures, the complexity of their organization, and how really mature they are. In the West, we don't know about that, and I don't think other Eastern churches are really that familiar with them. So from your perspective then, Core Bishop, are these examples of um, juridical structures that would be useful in the hoped-for reunion between the Catholic and Orthodox churches? I think that such structures, especially synodal governance, that is found in the Eastern Catholic churches, you see quite often we'll say something like, well, the West governs 
according to monarchical structures, and the East governs according to synodal structures. I think that is a generalization in itself. But even more so, there are synodal structures, synodal forms of governance in the Catholic Church, in the Eastern Catholic Churches. I think that it's important when we are exploring, the, the mantra now is, is syn synod and synodal governance. And when we're exploring that and trying to realize this form of governance in the Catholic Church, to be careful that it's not simply a democracy. I think that we in the West misconstrue synodal governance as a democracy. And it's not that at all. We have to take into account that the church is hierarchically structured according to orders. And those orders are responsible for the governance of the church in various ways. Synodal governance is really a beautiful interplay between governance by an individual and governance by a collegial body. How do we take the benefits of governance by one person, which can give initiative to things, balance that off with governance by many people who can bring different perspectives and expand the, the ability of the church to involve other people, to involve more than just one person. Because the dangers of a monarchical form of government is, governance is a dictatorship. And if you have a collegial body, well, if you want to kill something, give it to a committee. So you have to take both bodies, and it does result in something beautiful. Core Bishop, back in your uh, speech in 2011, when you received the role of law ward, you mentioned that there seemed to be a hesitancy amongst canonists to engage with the topic of ecumenism. Um, some uh, experiencing institutional fatigue, that there have been all these talks, and yet it doesn't seem that there's been any noticeable progress. Others seeing it more as a utopian ideal. Could you talk a little bit about how you view canon lawyers being able to participate, and uh, the Canon Law Society of America in particular, in the furtherance of the work of ecumenism? Well, one of the problems that we're facing right now is that people in your generation, Tim, look at the situation and our relationships with the Orthodox and the Oriental Orthodox and the, and the Protestants, and you say, well, things aren't that bad. It's pretty good. Why don't we just settle down for a while, relax, and go about our business? What has happened, though, is that we've forgotten how terrible things were, how divided we really were. Uh, anecdotally, there is a story about a superior general of the Jesuits who in the 1940s was formally censured by the Holy See for committing the crime of reciting the Our Father with an Orthodox bishop. That's how bad things were. So we've come a long way. I think now that we perhaps need to jumpstart things. In some way, there's an institutional fatigue. We've had, and we've had spent a lot of energy and money on a lot of dialogues. 
I think what we need to do now is to say, okay, have we dialogued enough? Have we pretty much agreed upon everything we can possibly agree upon at this moment? And then say, okay, what can we do that the dialogues won't give us? What can we achieve in terms of communion that dialogues just can't do? So, Core Bishop, um, a Pew study in 2015 and 2016 um, revealed that only about 35% of Orthodox and only about 38% of, uh, of Catholics were, were favorable towards the reunion of the churches. How do we as canonists address that issue? Well, that's, I think that's the job of the ecumenist, first of all, because I don't think we've reached um, grassroots. We have, there's a lot that has already been accomplished. For example, with the Coptic Orthodox Church, the Armenian Orthodox Church, the Syriac Church. If you ask people, well, what was the division about? No one knows. But someone who was educated could say, well, it was about Christology. In the fifth century, we broke communion with each other because of our understanding of Christology. All of that has been officially, officially resolved. The head of the Catholic Church has issued common declarations with the head of all those other churches that we agree on Christology. We have no differences. So my point is, and sounds kind of cavalier, but if we have now resolved that issue, the dispute over Christology with the Coptics, why are we separated? We may have differences, but that was our only dispute. So what role do you see for canon lawyers specifically? Uh, let's take your average canon lawyer working in a diocese, perhaps in a tribunal. How can they work towards um, a successful ecumenical movement well, I think, in the Catholic Church? I think the average canon lawyer can do so like the average priest can when, when Orthodox or Eastern Catholics approach you to have some awareness and understanding of who they are, where they come from. Okay, uh, one priest who is a wonderful priest asked me in dead serious, do you think we'll ever be able to reunite with the Muslims? As if this was an ecumenical issue like the Orthodox. It was just, it was, it was mind boggling. Um, what can you do? I think we need to be thinking of the future. What happens if all of a sudden Pope Francis and the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople, Bartholomew, concelebrate mass one day? What structures will follow? What do the governance arrangements need to be? What would a church that was uni is united look like? We really are not thinking in those terms. Most of most canon lawyers, although we would, you know, disdain such a position with regard to institutions, we take the approach of, well, let them come back, let them rejoin us. That's not going to happen. I think it, I always compare it, I use the metaphor of a young couple. If a young couple, when they marry, think that their lives are not going to change or their lifestyles will not be different, those two people should not marry. If the churches reunite, and if we think that we're going to continue just the way we are, and they're going to continue just the way they are, 
that won't happen. But we can also see that, yes, we could have a certain autonomy for both churches and still enjoy full communion with each other. Uh, Core Bishop, the next thing I'd like to turn to is you've given us a lot of your thoughts on, on where we've been. Can you tell me a little bit about where you think we're going? Um, I see serious, serious challenges facing the canon law society and canonists in the future. Let's talk about the society first of all. And this has nothing to do with the capacity and qualities of the younger canonists. I see people who are just as committed and zealous and wanting to work. But I think the problem of the canon law society right now is we're not educating, schools are not educating enough people who are willing to put pen to paper in scholarly work. And the Canon Law Society is known for the scholarly work it has produced. It was the one that praised and evaluated and uh, made comments on the various drafts of the, of the 1983 code and the 1990 code and made two beautiful commentaries. I think if we don't do a commentary very, very soon, we're not going to have capable people, people capable of doing so. So what I would think that the Canon Law Society needs to do is to encourage the universities and facilitate somebody getting a degree, a doctorate in Canon Law. We need people with doctorates. We also need to encourage people who have licenses that it's not simply a license to practice, but a license to write. Uh, that's, the, that's going to be the big challenge. One of the things that came about was that this, all the seminaries closed, a great majority of the seminaries closed. So the bishops did not feel the need to send somebody away to stand, study canon law. As long as they had somebody in the tribunal, they were fine. So that's, that's one of the things that happened there. Another thing where the future will be, I don't think that canon law will be a clerical profession in the future. I think we will have clerics and people who are consecrated religious devoting themselves to canon law, but I would see the future of canon law being in the hands of the laity. This is not simply for, okay, we need to invite, involve the laity, but more that right now, in the immediate future, we need to have the priests in the parish, okay? And we can't, we don't have the luxury of having an ordained minister doing some things that anyone else could do who had the intellectuals and the educational background. So some things I see as a, as a promising, that's with regard to laity, but I think with regard to the skill sets, we really have to work on those a lot. I'm also going to be very interested to see what happens with regard to our, our conventions, because I think that the financial situation of our churches will also have an impact on that. Lastly, about the future. I think we need to be translating things that were already done. There's a lot written in other languages that would be a benefit to American canonists, but they don't, they can't read the language. So why doesn't the Canon Law Society translate these things and get them out there? That's not a broad view, but it's kind of just specific problems that I see. Core Bishop, um, I'd like to uh, 
kind of turn to what you found most rewarding in your canonical ministry and also those things that you found disappointing or challenging. And I think you can address that however, however you like. Um, it's both the teaching and the writing. The Can the Canon Law Society has been most supportive of the Eastern Catholic and Orthodox churches and their law. I don't think we would have had an English translation of the Eastern Code published had it not been for the Canon Law Society of America. And it's also been supportive in fostering committees, seminars we're going to have this fall on topics of interest to Eastern Canon lawyers and Latin Canon lawyers who are interested in such topics. So one of the things has been for me through the society and as a canonist to foster and promote the Eastern Catholic churches to a broader world who that may not know very much about them. That's where I am there too. Core Bishop, for people who are considering studying canon law or for uh, new students, what, um, what advice or encouragement would you give them? Study Latin. Study it well, learn it as best you can, and learn other languages. Study other languages because it will open doors that are somewhat would be closed otherwise. Secondly, you get a lot of papers across your desk. Realize that there are people behind that. I often have problems with tribunals, and I don't know if it was in your case or not, Tim, uh, where the tribunal starts, they, they get a new canonist and they plug that canonist in as the defender of the bond. I'd rather have the person being an advocate for a while, learning the needs of the people, the real cases, and then approach and then be a defender of the bond. That's the one thing that I think makes people a little bit more approach the theoretical rather than the real and the practical. And for those of us who've been in practice, what would you uh, like to say to, to us? Well, especially to the laypersons, the young men and women, thank you for the sacrifice. And if you're married with children, I thank their families for the sacrifices they've made so that you people can serve the church. I very much appreciate that. To the priests and that are studying, I just want to encourage them and to take their pastoral ministry to the tribunals and things like that. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us, Corp Bishop? We live in interesting times. And it is very difficult to live in such times, but it brings great challenges. Uh, and I think this Pope is one who is willing to say, let's not pay so much attention to crossing the T's and dotting the I's, but just making sure we get people to heaven. Thanks, Tim. Thank you, Donna. Thank you, Corbett Bishop Ferris. We appreciate you uh, taking the time to visit with us today. And we also like to thank you for your service to the society. And we'd also like to thank all of the listeners today. Please keep tuned in. We're going to keep putting out these podcasts. Uh, it's been a pleasure having the opportunity to interview somebody with the um, caliber of mind of Corbett Bishop Ferris. And also the pastoral heart uh, is evident in all of the work you do, particularly with your students. Thank you very much, Corbett Bishop. Thank you. God bless. Bye-bye.